On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, Jane Philpott resigned from the federal cabinet today. If you don't know who Jane Philpott is, if you don't know why this is a big deal, well, stick around because we're going to explain it. It is a big deal. It is troubling for liberals. It is significant. We'll tell you all the reasons why. Also, fast foods, they're not good for you. But you knew that already. I'm telling you something else, though. They're getting worse for you. New study is out saying that fast foods are progressively getting bigger, saltier, and less healthy. The author of the study will join us. And Don Robertson and I, we chat about all kinds of stuff, including sports that want to be in the Olympics. Should they be? Well, you can decide. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You probably heard that Jane Philpott resigned from the federal liberal government cabinet this afternoon, probably about 4, 4.30, just recently in the last hour or two. Uh, she isn't or wasn't just the Treasury Board president, but she has also been regularly, repeatedly cited as one of Prime Minister Trudeau's most trusted ministers. Which is a problem, it would seem, since she's also, and we'll talk about this in a minute or two, another woman, another well-placed, highly regarded woman leaving cabinet. Here's what she said as she was leaving in her statement today. I must abide by my core values, my ethical responsibilities, and constitutional obligations, she said, as she was pointing out, by the way, that this was directly related to what was going on with the SNC-Lavalin case. Uh, Back to her quote, there can be a cost to acting on one's principles, but there is a bigger cost to abandoning them. She goes on from there, but I want to bring in Tim Harper. He's a longtime political journalist who covered Ottawa for nearly two decades, also was down in Washington. Uh, He joins us now. Tim, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. How are you? Well, I think I'm probably a lot better than Justin Trudeau right now. Most of us are. Uh, this uh, this would seem that even those who would be the most dyed-in-the-wool, unfailing, unflinching liberal supporters would be looking at this saying, oh my goodness, this is starting to get a little scary. Oh, I don't think there could be a liberal supporter in the country, Scott, who's looking at this and wondering what the heck is going on here. Um, you, you, By the way, you, you described Jane Philpott um, uh, to a T in your intro there, that this woman... Uh, was really the personification of um, uh, determination and efficiency in that in that cabinet. She was known as the uh, get things done minister, uh, and this is uh, th- this is not just a cabinet resignation. This is a, a, a this is an earthquake. Uh, losing a woman of this caliber, hot, a hard, obviously hard on the heels of losing a woman of the caliber of Jody Wilson Raybould. Um, this is a government that is now officially in crisis. There's no other way to put it. Tim, for those who don't know, uh, can you explain what the president of the Treasury Board does, what that position is that she was holding? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, a very key position, Scott. I mean, you're uh, uh, you know, overlooking the, uh, the government spending, but i got to remind you, she's only been in that post uh, for a very, very brief period of time, uh, dating back to the January cabinet shuffle uh, that will be studied by political scientists in ye- for years, perhaps, as the worst cabinet shuffle in Canadian mm. political history. It was the one where Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, was moved to um, Veterans Affairs. Jane Philpott had been the Minister of Indigenous Services. She was credited with a steely determination in dealing with potable water in Indigenous uh, communities, which had been a, um, 
uh, a vexing problem for this and previous governments for years. And by all accounts, she was making progress. She had uh, really raised the uh, the issue uh, and was working to reduce what she called a, uh, a national uh, uh, scandal of the number of Indigenous children being placed in foster care. Um, she was, uh, by all accounts, a very, very strong minister in that portfolio. She got moved out. So in one fell swoop, in one cabinet shuffle, you moved the... Um, the the senior Indigenous uh, Justice Minister and Attorney General down many, many rungs in the ladder, and you moved the Indigenous Services Minister, Jane Philpott, uh, out of a portfolio where she was working um, very well, and moved her into Treasury Board. Now, you know, then here we are talking about uh, two powerful women who have departed this cabinet. One is Indigenous, and the other was a was the uh, the point player on Indigenous services. So obviously we're talking about um, what has happened to Justin Trudeau's bona fides when he comes talking about his feminist values and Indigenous reconciliation, and, and, and it's symbolized uh, by both these women. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, look, so much of politics, I understand, is perception. I mean, we, I, how much we believe of politics and whatever, when you vote for someone, when there's a campaign, you are creating a perception of what you're going to do. How does, th- as you say, this is a huge problem now for a guy who has been lo- running, leading on the cam- on the ideas of helping women and helping Indigenous people. And as you say, in one swoosh, uh, so much of that stage has been ripped out from under his feet. Well, we're watching the, the Trudeau brand and, and this liberal government brand being trashed right in front of our eyes. And, you know, <clears throat> I should point out, uh, you like uh, I have, we've seen a lot of major um, cabinet departures, you know, dating back to John Turner and Trudeau's father and the Martin Cretchen battles and Lucien Bouchard and Brian Mulroney. But... A lot of that, those had to do with leadership aspirations. I've never seen anything like this, to be honest with you, where um, you have uh, senior ministers burning down their own house from within um, and both saying that they're uh, proud liberals and want to run for the liberals again in 2019. Um, but the brand is being torched. You know, forget sunny ways. Forget um, the pledge of openness and accountability. Forget the pledge about uh, more independence for ministers because this looks very much like... Um, I'll let my ministers be independent until uh, I don't like a decision, and then I'm going to do everything I can to lean on them to get that decision changed. Um, so much of what Justin Trudeau um, uh, campaigned on in, in 2015 and what they did the victory laps over in the ensuing couple of years where they had an extended honeymoon, it's all gone. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Tim Harper, longtime political writer, 20 years in Ottawa covering the federal government uh, as well as Washington. Um, and just before the break, Tim, we're talking about the Jane Philpott resignation because it is, I think, impactful and significant in a big way with his government. And I, I'm trying to keep track of, you said so many important things in, like, as I say, the last 30 or 45 seconds. I tried to write them down as fast as I could. Uh, first one, Tim, and that is this. It seems as though... You, there are people who will support this government who will say Jane, or sorry, Jody Wilson-Raybould was disgruntled or she was upset about being dumped down to Veterans Affairs or whatever else. She was a, a disgruntled employee and it was maybe there would be people who could take shots at her. Jane Philpott was someone who was in cabinet who presumably would have seen the goings on with this. Seems to me she becomes a harder target to try to make look bad out of this or look like she doesn't know what she's talking about. 
Well, there's, there's, I, I don't think there's going to be any attempt at a whisper campaign about Jane Philpott being difficult to work with or, or being a thorn in the side of the government. She had, uh, uh, I know for a fact, uh, unwavering respect and support from her caucus colleagues. So uh, she was also um, very close to Wilson-Raybould. And in many ways, you know, a resignation of this magnitude is always a surprise, Scott, but there was some foreshadowing. She, Jane Philpott was very active on social media, um, defending uh, uh, Wilson-Raybould uh, after uh, her testimony and um, after uh, her uh, resignation. Uh, so they And they worked together on some very key uh, pieces of legislation, and Philpott points it out in her statement, you know, the... Uh, um, uh, the uh, medical assistance in dying, and uh, uh, they worked together on, uh, on uh, cannabis um, legislation. But uh, th- there's also, I just, well, we have second here. There's, there was also a third um, uh, development over the weekend that didn't get as much uh, publicity, but another fairly prominent woman in the uh, in the uh, caucus from uh, Whitby, Selena Cesar yes. Spanis. Yes. She's, she's also been very vocal in her support of Wilson-Raybould and was, again, today in support of Philpott. She announced over the weekend uh, that she's not running for re-election. Um, she will uh, leave as a one-term MP, another powerful, outspoken woman. So she wouldn't have the profile of a cabinet minister, but there's there's three. So um, And three women, which, is which again, seems so... I, that's what I mean by yeah. three. Three women, yeah. But not three. just, I mean, three three members of the party. If a guy were to resign right now, I think it would have an impact at this point, but it wouldn't be like it has been. Well, you know, you got to wonder. <laughs> I'd love to know what Christian Freeland's thinking right now. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not suggesting anything other than I, you know, I heard her on radio last week, I believe in Ottawa, where she seemed to be uh, defending the prime minister. But, um, you know, there were three real uh, female heavyweights in that in that cabinet. Two of them are gone. Freeland is uh, um, fairly quiet today. I, I haven't seen anything from her. But, um, you know, I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily some revolt of women in the cabinet. But, you know, um, these are women who were not lifelong politicians and I think came into this government um, thinking that they would be seeing politics be practiced differently. And there's, uh, right now, I'd say overwhelming evidence that Trudeau and uh, the PMO, the Prime Minister's office, was practicing um, hardball uh, backroom politics just the way every government in the history of this country has, and there was nothing different going on at all. You mentioned that nobody really thought this one was going to happen today. or There may have been hints, but not really expecting it. What happens if there were to be another one? I mean, are we at the point where if there was another one? Like, in other words, can the prime minister, can the government just continue to roll along and keep dismissing these? Or is there a point of no return at which something is going to happen? Well, I think he's there. You know, he's um, he's speaking here in Toronto in about uh, an hour. Uh, I don't think he can... Um, take a couple questions on this and about how he's, he's uh, you know, he's, he's going to miss uh, Jane Philpott and she did a great job. He's got to get ahead of this. And this has been the government's fault right from the uh, the publication of that first Globe and Mail um, story about what, geez, we're in the, what, the fourth week of this. They have never been able to get ahead of this. They have never figured out how to put a stop to it, to change the channel. Um, to even cast any doubt on what mm. uh, Wilson Raybould testified uh, at, um, and they're, they're they're letting um, 
they've let Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, call the shots, really, um, first by her silence, then by her uh, devastating testimony. They have never got ahead of this. The damage control is abysmal. And, you know, I, I, I'm at the point now where you could suggest to me that anything's going to happen. I'd say, yeah, maybe, because mm. uh, it's just, it's got the feel of a, of a snowball effect. Yeah, a pile-on almost at this point. Oh, we only have a minute or so left. you got a government who doesn't know how to handle uh, this and that they are uh, reacting and they're not playing defense and they sure can't get out and play any offense either. Tim, we only have about a minute left, but you mentioned something else that I have found fascinating and very puzzling about this whole thing, and that is uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould has, despite all the things she said about her government, has said she plans to run as a liberal in the next election. And now... Uh, today, Judy uh, Philpot says the same. Or, sorry, Judy Philpot says the same thing. Yep. How do you say all these things about your government? Basically, say they are doing terrible things, and I don't have confidence in them. And then, but I want to run again and serve under them in the next election. How does that work? Well, they're not saying they want to serve under uh, Trudeau. It's notable that uh, in the Philpot statement, there is not a mention of the prime minister at all. Uh, and that she says she has uh, lost uh, confidence in her government. There's no thanking the prime minister for putting her in there or anything like that. So, you know, this is an interesting, um, another predicament for Trudeau. Uh, You know, ultimately he has to sign nomination papers if he's still leading the party into the 2019 campaign in October. But I don't think he can toss these former cabinet ministers out of caucus without creating more resignations or more problems for him. Um, they really shouldn't be in caucus. They, they've lost confidence in the government. But I guess I can't speak on behalf of Jane Philpott, who's very good at doing it on her own. But I, there, I guess there's a differentiation be, between being a proud liberal and what you think the Liberal Party stands for and your lack of confidence in the way um, these so-called liberal principles are being practiced by the government in power. But Tim, I got to Tim, I got to jump. Unfortunately, we got to run. I got to get to a break. But thank you so much for doing this. I always appreciate having you on. Thanks for having me on, Scott. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to warn you: the next segment or two uh, may hit you close to home. Maybe something you're not thrilled to hear about. Because some of us, and I am including myself, by the way, the thumb is pointed right back at yours truly when I talk about this. Some of us do enjoy the odd visit to the fast food places. You know, I go to the gym every night. I try to stay in shape. I pain myself when I go there. And then I go out and I find myself driving through a fast food joint more than I should. And here's the problem with that. There is a new study out that is telling us that over the past few decades, fast food items, fast food in general, has become bigger, the items, saltier, Uh, less healthy, and uh, probably more designed to intentionally or unintentionally do us harm. Uh, The lead author of this study is uh, Dr. Megan McCrory. She is a research associate professor with the Department of Health Sciences at Boston University. She joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, so here's the thing. I don't think anybody out there really believes that fast food is good for us. Uh, But when I read over a bunch of what was written in your study and some of the things about this, it seems as though it may be actually way worse for us than we actually thought in the first place. I think that's 
true because people don't realize how many calories are in certain size items and they don't realize how many calories, even if they do see the number on the menu board, which is now required now by uh, fast food restaurants and other chain restaurants, you know, really put two and two together and understand how that those calories relate to the total calories that they need in a day. You mentioned those boards, and I was going to get to that in a bit, but you, since you mentioned okay. them, those were put up, and we have them in Canada just like down in the States, and we go into a fast food place and they say, oh, if you buy this, it's so many calories. That was supposed to be the magical elixir that was going to make all of us suddenly say, oh, wait a second, I don't need 800 calories in that one burger. Has it made any difference at all? Well, um, I think it, you know, on average, no. But it does help the people who are interested in knowing and know what the numbers mean. If they are interested in paying attention on that particular day, that they go. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm guessing how many people are walking into a fast food place who are really counting their calories? Because it seems like as soon as you go in, you're sort of, for that moment anyway, throwing up your hands saying, okay, I'm going to eat something that's probably not really good for me, so whatever. I agree. If you're watching your calories, you don't really go into one of those places unless you decide that you're not going to watch them for that particular day. <laughs> That's right. You're hanging out at the vegan place, not at the fast food place yeah. that day. Yeah. But you yeah. looked, your study looked at, and it's a, it's a huge study, you looked at a, a rather massive, I think it's close to 2,000 items at 10 fast food chains and how they have gone up in size and calories and everything else since 1986. And I believe, tell me if I've got the number correct here, but the the average item has gone up in calories by 226%, like almost two and a half times, two and a quarter times the size calorie-wise that it was once upon a time. That's actually not calories. That is for the number of items oh, in okay. sides and desserts. So what are we talking? So are the calories up as well? Are these items getting bigger among themselves? Oh, yes. The calories for entrees, sides, and desserts went up uh, greatly. And the biggest increase we saw was in the dessert items, 186 calories total over that 30-year period of time. And the calorie change in entrees was 90 calories over that period of time. So we're getting almost 100 more calories just in the entree, which would be burgers, sandwiches, things like that. And considering that some of these already are approaching, well, half, maybe more than half of the total daily intake of calories that we're supposed to have, starts to add up. If you go once or twice a day, some people are doing that once or twice a day, uh, you're getting there very quickly. It does. Just uh, entree, side, and if you add a beverage, that would be 50% of our uh, daily calorie requirement. And that's only on average. So there are certainly a lot of lunches that you could make up that would be, you know, 75 or 80 percent probably, and some that are lower. The thing about this, though, that I'm really puzzled by is your your study also points to other studies that shows that something like 40 percent of Americans are obese. I don't have the exact number for Canadians. I, I don't think we're far behind if we are still behind at this point. But when people are eating enough that... I know there are people who have glandular conditions, but generally when people are eating enough to become obese, are the fast food places not just doing what people want? Are they not giving them exactly what they want by having bigger portions and more calories? That that seems to be the way to bring them in. Hey, you get a big meal if you come here. They are, and you're getting a big meal for a, a, 
a, a bargain. Right. You know, the cheap, the food is cheap, and that's what people are looking for when they go there. Um, they are. They're responding to consumer demand. But I think that the food industry is half half the battle. You know, people are partly responsible, and the other and the food industry is the other part responsible. So, um, to the extent that they can make decisions that would help the public and it would be in their business, you know, interest, uh, then I think that they have a partial responsibility. Well, I can tell you, I don't know if the same TV commercial is playing down there that is up here, but right now there is a commercial on for Burger King, which is showing its Whopper. Why would you want to come and get the Burger King Whopper? Because it's so much bigger than the Big Mac. And it's not, I don't think, and I haven't studied the commercial all that carefully. I've seen it passing by. I don't think they even talk about the taste. It's just entirely based on the fact that you get a bigger portion here and it's a better deal. Right. And people are out for a good bargain and to be satisfied when they go eat some food. And size has always been seen as a good thing when it comes to portions, right? Or at least more recently. It's true. Uh, What's there's some interesting other research, though, that shows that if you give people a smaller portion and versus a larger portion, they feel the same satisfaction and they don't know they're eating more or less. Hmm. So if they were, to, if the food industry was to sort of, uh, what do you call it, do the stealthy uh, reduction in portion size, just in a small sort of way, I bet the average consumer would not notice and they would be just as satisfied you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml talking about diet specifically fast food diet because a new study is out from boston university showing that the fat content the size the salt content all of this stuff over the last number of years, over the last three decades, has been steadily rising at fast food restaurants. You go and buy an item today, in 2019, what you're getting is decidedly different than it was in 1986. Dr. Megan McCrory, Megan McCrory, uh, Megan McCrory, pardon me. Uh, I, you know what? I have a f- someone in the family named Megan, and when I see your name, it just completely throws me off now. But Megan McCrory, uh, yeah. she's the co-author of, or the lead author of this study. And just before the break, you were pointing out that uh, if they could stealthily start to take the sizes back a little bit, reduce them a little bit, that maybe we could get into a healthier zone here. The irony of this is that so many times I, it, when I do go out to get food, whether it's at a fast food place or elsewhere, it seems as though the items are already getting a lot smaller. And I don't know whether that's just because I'm bigger than I was when I was seven years old and went, but it seems like already the items are down from where they were. Well... Uh, there was a study that came out in early 2018 that was published after we had submitted our paper for publication that shows some of the restaurants, fast food as well as other chain restaurants, are actually dropping from the menu their uh, some of their large size items. So it could be real. Or it could be just that as you grow up, that, you know, like wagon wheels. You remember wagon wheels, those desserts that, you know, when I was a kid, they were a full dessert. And now it's like a bite and a half. And you go, whatever happened to the big wagon? Now, I, that may be just because my hands are way bigger now than they used to be once upon a time. And they just seem like they're smaller. I don't know. But if they're smaller, if they feel smaller to us, I guess the point of this is it probably feels like it's okay to have more of them because they're not really that big anymore. Uh, yes. 
I think so. And but another issue is that you said even yourself that you're going often. And so if people would go less often, that would also help as well and treat it more like a special occasion instead of an everyday occurrence. Okay, not not every not every, not every day. <laughs> no, <laughs> for the record, not, not every day, no, but too often. 40, you're right. Um, Forty-five percent of uh, people between the ages of twenty to thirty-nine in the U.S. anyway are going to eat fast food on any given day. That's really? what the research shows. So it's quite a lot. Yes, and it's thirty-seven percent when you're talking about all adults. Wow. Okay, so we've got these bigger portions. We've got more fat in them, but also you point out the fact that the salt percentage is really kind of stunning when you think of what's in this. Uh, by some of the numbers, I've seen almost 50% again of your local or of your daily sodium intake are going into potentially one item, one meal. Uh, well, not quite. Yes, I guess if you add up the uh, entree, sides, and desserts, yes, that's correct. So that is shocking. Maybe this is not an easy answer, but what's worse for you, to have more fat in your diet or more salt in your diet? Or both? I guess both. (laughs) Yes. um, They're both bad. It's hard to choose one over the other. Is this only... Now, your study was in fast food, so I'm I'm putting you a little bit on the spot here, but is this unique to fast food, or is this kind of thing happening even when you go to the grocery store with packaged food and things? Because, again, it seems as though, we mentioned a few minutes ago, people like the idea of getting a bargain, getting a quantity for their money and getting what they think they deserve to be paying for, and so it seems as though some of the items that are being packaged are also going up. It seems like this may be not just fast food, but across the board. I would say it's definitely true across the board for a portion size and for calories. For sodium, it may be a little different or things are maybe on the downturn because there is a move by the food industry. Some of them are actually voluntarily reducing the sodium in you know, their canned goods and other items that are available in the supermarket anyway. And selling them as reduced sodium. It's a sales feature. Well... Uh, Sometimes. Some of them are, but some of them is just in their regular product. Okay. These fast food places, though, something else that a lot of them, maybe all of them now are doing, you you can walk in, I think, to almost every fast food place and see an ad for some kind of healthy option. Mm -hmm. Are they actually healthy? Well, uh, I would say that they're, they're healthier than a lot of the other items on the menu. The problem is they actually haven't done enough of that or that people aren't actually going to fast food restaurants to eat those kinds of foods so they don't keep them on the menu. Uh, but it, there, there was another study that came out that actually looked at the trend uh, before and after the menu labeling requirement as far as you know, the calorie labeling requirement came out. So that uh, requirement may have stimulated the restaurants to offer healthier items to make their menus look better overall. And you can see that there are some items that actually changed and got healthier or they introduced new items that were healthier. But on average, the decrease between 2008 and 2015 was a reduction in nine calories a day or nine calories per item. So it's very small. <laughs> so is there, we only have 30 seconds or so, but is there anything we can do about this? Or is the reality that, again, when we go back to what we started with, if you're going into a fast food place, you probably don't really care. So 
whatever. Like, is there an answer to this? Uh, well, I think part of the answer lies with the people, part it lies with the food industry. So as far as the people, they can try to go less often or share their french fries with their buddy so they don't eat the whole french fries. Well, that will help make, you know, small steps. The food uh, industry could offer smaller portions at the proportional pricing so that consumers still feel like they're getting a bargain. They're just getting a smaller amount. Dr. Megan McCrory, you can read about her study online. There's lots of stories about it right now. Uh, Boston University study. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as she is that we're going to all have our friends sharing their fries. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, but you know dare to dream or maybe just don't go as often that's something I'm trying to work on don't go as often save the money and your health you're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML the NHL Board of Governors meeting is going on right now all the uh, the folks all the big wigs from the NHL are hanging out at some fancy hotel down in Florida or California, and well, they're all they're all billionaires. They're not going to go to the Motel Six. That's true, but it's all you know. It's, it's amazingly to me, it's always in Florida. They never have it in Toronto or Buffalo or New York or somewhere. It's only because they have a choice. That's right. They want to be able to go, and it's probably close for most of the owners to slide over there from their summer homes. Or There's their not too many homes. guys flying down from Toronto and Minnesota to that meeting. I'm sure. So. They're at this Board of Governors meeting. There's a bunch of things on the agenda that they want to talk about and tinker with maybe and sort out. Sometimes out of these meetings, they have big changes. Not often. It's usually the starting point for discussions. One of the things that I found really interesting that the Board of Governors are apparently going to be talking about this week is because now there are so many cameras covering NHL games and microphones everywhere and announcers between the benches and they're mic'd up and everything else. They're trying to figure out if there is some way to cut down on the amount of swearing that goes on on the ice and on the benches. And it got me thinking, Don, why is there so much swearing that goes on in hockey? Because it is part of the culture. It really is part of the culture. That dressing room, if, if someone has never been in a hockey dressing room, I don't care what level you're at, it is generally a filthy place. I don't mean filthy necessarily with... And, you know, anti-women or something. Just you, if you are offended by the F word, your ears are going to bleed in any hockey dressing room anywhere on the planet. Why is that? Well, we don't permit it with the real McCoy. Uh-huh, I know. There's no swearing. No. Um, and you had a player once upon a time who wouldn't. I know that. Yes. Yeah, we still we still have some. Okay. <clears throat> but even they can be drawn in on occasion. Um it's funny, you know, because of our age, our guys are generally retired from pros, so they're 25 to 35 years old, and they've got little toddlers, and they come in, and my my language in the dressing room is uh, less than truly British at the best of times, and uh, I often wonder how I get through this hour. And um, Lisa has an itchy sensor finger. Yeah, there's, uh, but almost, almost um, unanimously... When guys bring their kids in, so the, an F-bomb will get dropped and it'll start. And you'll hear them saying, okay, this is just hockey talk. And and almost every father says the same thing, some of which have maybe never heard it before. Don't tell your mother, this is just hockey talk. We don't, we can't talk like this outside the dressing room. And that's not just the Dundas Real McCoys. That is every no, single. No, it's universal. It's every single hockey Absolutely. And, and And on the ice, you... You know, you say things about an opposing player's mother, and you 
suggests that people do things that are anatomically impossible to do, and it's the way it is. And I, I don't know if you do change it. What amazes me always is that some of these guys, uh, when they're outside of the dressing room, they are completely capable of talking <laughs> in the Queen's English. Yeah. They are completely capable of not talking like that. And yet the moment you cross the threshold into the dressing room, it's like some switch has been flicked and you now have to use it as a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb, an article, a preposition. <laughs> it's like a playpen in there. It, I mean, it truly is. I mean, it's where, I mean, we have pizza delivered. So the guys, because lots of them get there right from uh, work on a Friday night. And so, you know, there's always lots of pizza and, and um and tea and uh, water for the guys to drink. But, I mean, it's another atmosphere. Where do you generally see 20 grown men just wandering around with no gear on and making comments that are less than appropriate at times? I, was I mean, say it, the YMCA, but that might be <laughs> that uh, might be it. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? So, I mean, just that little domain for players, which is the attraction to a lot of them, it's the camaraderie and it's and it's hockey talk. But could you ever Is then, it appropriate? Of course it's not. Could you ever then suddenly tell a bunch of players you can't do this? When you're at the rink, you can't do it. Could it change? Could they change it? Could the NHL sure put in could. rules that say if you use an F word on the ice, you are facing a ten thousand dollar fine or that would do else? it. You'd have you'd have to bring fines in. And I think the talk that you know, we're miking almost everybody now, and kids will be listening. It would work for the lion's share of them. Some of them aren't going to give a rat's butt about it. And that's the way I'm going to talk. And But, you know, there's a lot less fighting now, so there's a lot more yapping. You know, the old days, you look at somebody, you drop the gloves, and away you go, and they tap each other on the butt and go to the penalty box, and, and now that frustration's built up, and it comes out orally inappropriately, but a fine would start doing it. I mean, we all know that, that, uh, when you get the hockey night in Canada towel at the end of a period, which is, uh, a treasured item for a lot of, uh, NHL players, they, they speak quite eloquently and, and, and don't even say darn, you know, they'll say darn, maybe rather than damn. And, and they clean it right up. And, and, uh, an old, uh, I wouldn't call Bill a, a mentor, but, uh, an old friend, um, when I had the minor pro team in Brantford, I got to know Bill Waters very well. Former assistant general manager with the Leafs, and yep, yep, and 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 uh, color commentator on the NHL yep. games. Yep. And I I said to him one day, I said, "How do you do radio?" He said, "I don't know," because his language was is sometimes much like mine, and there's just a switch that he did. But he made a living talking on the radio and talking to the media. But but again, it seems as though most mo- most guys can when they step out. I've yet to see the guy who comes out of the hockey dressing room and goes to sign an autograph with, for a little kid and slips up and lets it out. They just don't. They know how to do it. And so That's I, what I said. so they can do it if I they want. I think they to. can. I think they can. I just what I've what's always puzzled me is I don't you don't hear it very much on a basketball court. Occasionally you will, but they it's like they recognize that the people well, are right there. They're right there and if you're in a in a basketball court and you're yelling f bombs, people are going to hear it. You probably on baseball because we can't hear anything they're saying. It's probably fine. And football, you know, it's going to be done. But it, it, it's like all these athletes 
recognize when it's okay to do it, and so they do it and seem to fill the space. The, I, I think the arena aspect of it, the fact that you're on, you're inside boards, there's glass there, it's almost like being in the dressing room on your own when you're out there and it's like nothing. I mean, these guys are pretty focused. You know, they know their kids are in the stands. They know their wife. They know their mother's there. There's always mothers there, right? And even with your mother in the stands, I mean, once you're inside the glass and on the ice, it doesn't seem like there's any rules to that effect. Like, you know, these guys are using whatever salty language they can get their tongue on at times, and they know that their mother's up in the stands watching and going, oh, Scott, stop talking like and you that. Know how you can but always, they do it. And you know how even from a distance how you can always tell that hockey players are doing it? Because they're missing their front two teeth, a lot of them, and when you say that word, there's just something that happens with their top lip. You can always tell yeah. from 100 feet away when a guy has said that when he's missing his teeth. You can, <laughs> you can just see it. It's something anyway. I don't know that uh, I don't know the NHL is going to do anything with that because I don't think the Players Association is ever going to go along with a fine system for bad words set on the ice. I just don't see that. And and are you really going to start having referees now having to take notes on? Oh, Don said a bad word. Oh, so and so needs money in the swear jar. Like I just there's no chance. And and what you're going to now penalize guys because he happened to say it at the wrong spot on the ice where a microphone happened to pick him up. I mean that's not going to work. Hey, the referees. Um having been one. Sometimes do the same thing. Yeah, or, I mean, they're in the same arena. They're in the same environment. And when a guy comes up and loses it, and, I mean, it happened in our game Saturday night three or four times. But nobody even blinked. Nobody said a word about it. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't understand really where it started or how it started. I don't really know why hockey has this culture, but it does. And I don't know that. I'm not justifying. I'm just, when, when I say it's on the rink and inside the glass and everything else, I'm giving you some rationale as to how the mindset is. You know, the only way this would get changed, honestly, is you can't do it at the NHL. You start it at the OHL or you start it in minor midget or something, and you give penalties then to do it. And the, if the guys come up not doing it, that it's not part of the culture, then you're not going to carry it on. And it, that the problem with that, if you're the NHL, is it might take six years, seven years, eight years, nine years for it to become a thing. But, you know, they grandfathered in not wearing helmets. They grandfathered in some other stuff. Maybe if they re- if this is really an issue for them, that they really are worried about picking up these bad words on the microphone, it's something you got to say it's going to be a five-year plan that we're going to do as opposed to overnight. Yeah, I, I don't think, I, I think they're, I think they're just, doing what some politicians do and, and trying to look like they're trying to address something that's inappropriate and we're trying to figure out how to fix this. I don't know if they really care if it's fixed. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, and I talked about this the other day with somebody, I can't remember who, the International Olympic Committee announced that Coming up in Tokyo, or in Paris, pardon me, in 2024, we're going to have four new Olympic sports. Breakdancing, rock climbing, skateboarding, and surfing. Four sports that I don't think anybody other than the committees for breakdancing, rock climbing, skateboarding, and surfing have thought there was a clamoring for to get into the Olympics. Anyway, Don, there are other organizations, and this is entirely seriously, I'm not being ironic, I'm not being funny, there are other sports organizations that are lobbying hard for berths in the Olympics. They want their sport to be considered as part as an Olympic sport as well. 
Tell me which of these, we'll go through them. Tell me which of these should be an Olympic sport. And however you wish to decide that it should or should not be. I mean, it, look, if, if skateboarding and surfing are, you can use that as the barometer. But anyway, which of these sports should be Olympic sports? Billiards. The billiards people are trying, are lobbying hard to become an Olympic sport. Should billiards be an Olympic sport? Ahead of the other four. So you'd put it ahead of surfing or breakdancing? I mean, I'd put almost anything ahead of breakdancing, honestly. Yeah, I think that's that's a bit nuts. And the reason I would talk about billiards is because they do have a world championship. Yes. I don't think they have a world championship breakdancing. Oh, I'm sure they do. But, but yeah, billiards, I guess they do. But I billiards. Guess, I, I've missed the tickets. Yeah, but billiards at least, you do have, it's an objective standard. You can play a game of billiards, and I can tell you at the end of that game who won. Yeah, I do, well, and surfing. I guess, I guess it's like winter skiing. It depends on the conditions. If you get the right wave to cut, look at me talking like a hippie. No kidding. Boy. Um, right? It, it really enhance your opportunity to do something with it. I say this the about- The rock climbing and the break dancing, I'm not sure unless a record player gets slow. Well, I'm saying this about surfing. Uh, it's the only player. Olympic sport I would think at, that you may be at risk of being eaten by a shark. So there's that element of danger thrown in. Well, the, the the other thing that if they bring surfing in, I would squirrel off topic, I'm sorry, but That's okay. if you bring, so that would suggest to me that Toronto can now never host the Olympics. Oh, no, no, again. you just have an off-site surfing venue in Honolulu. <laughs> so where are you going to go? <laughs> well, in Paris, where are they having it in Paris? Are they going to do it at, uh, at, at the, I don't know. Where they have the what's the uh, the movie uh, thing every year that's right on the beach in like oh, Morocco? Con, yeah. Are there big waves at Con? Are you going to have a, a surfing competition there? Uh, and rock climbing. Look, I, I haven't seen the movie yet. The one that just won the best documentary at the Academy Awards called Free Solo, where the guy goes up that fate, straight flat rock wall with no ropes and anything else. Why even have a rock climbing competition? Just give him the gold medal for as many years as he's still alive, because it's inevitable that he's eventually, unfortunately, it's, it's a, you know what he does. Your margin for error and failure is zero. Is is, is is not a good consequence. Keep giving him gold medals until he's no longer with us. Um, all right, so billiards maybe karate, karate, which I'm surprised isn't in there to begin well, with. Karate's like boxing, isn't it? And and taekwondo and yeah, yeah I, I don't. I, I'm surprised it's not in there. Squash, yes. I don't know why squash is not in there, no, and nor racquetball. Quite honestly, why would there are other sports but where you tennis. have? Yeah, you have other sports where you have in swimming, for example, you have the front crawl, you have the backstroke, you have the butterfly. Those are swimming, but they are different. Well, why would you not just say racket sports and have badminton and squash and racquetball and tennis? And Again, I would put those ahead of break dancing. Uh, esports. You know what esports are? Video games. That's the ones you do, yeah. Video games. But there's a big deal now. Big, big, big money in this thing. Yeah, that's stupid. Well, <laughs> they sell out arenas to watch people play video games. Good for them. So you're not, you're not going to be... No. Okay. Bridge. No. The bridge people have been pushing for years to be in the Olympics. Contact bridge. And when they say contact, they don't mean it like hockey contact. Like they are pushing hard that you should have bridge in the Olympics. That it is in some have, places considered a sport. They do have a. <laughs> it is. Can't say that. Just say it. So you're gonna you're gonna give the big X on bridge. Yep, bridge is gone. Obstacle course racing. That would make some sense. It's like it's like a uh, well, I, 
I guess it's been a long time since I've been to an obstacle course race. But it'd be like that American w- Ninja show, probably. Yeah, Something would, along that line. Yeah, it would be like that. It would be like uh, the triathlon. Okay. Right? Except you'd, you'd have you'd, obstacles in it. You've got obstacles in it. So at least there's a physical competition. Bridge, I, I'm not sure how fit you have to be. It might seem a little odd seeing a 400-pound guy go up and pick up his gold medal for winning bridge. I'm Look, curling once upon a time, all the guys and women decided suddenly they had to get in shape because they used to all look like Ed Wernick. Yep. And the only thing that would bugger up the throwing of the rocks was the ashes falling off their <laughs> smoke true. when they were throwing it. Or the polyester or off their <laughs> pants. And they, and they could do it with a rum and coke in the other hand. I well, mean, that's a real sport. Well. And knack. If you can do that, you deserve a gold medal. Uh, so maybe the bridge folks, if, if, if curlers decided they were going to get in shape and get all buff, and they did, maybe bridge players are going to be sitting there with, like, bulging biceps and tight t-shirts well, to show how fit they are. The only 400-pounder th- that should win a gold medal would be a sumo wrestler. No, a sumo has been talked about before, but obviously is never going to go in the Olympics, only because... There's really only one country that does it. It would seem slightly unfair. And especially, I mean, look, I suppose I was going to say it would be unfair because different cultures have different physical builds where they're athletes. Um, But then I suppose that's a benefit. You know, Ethiopian and Kenyan long distance runners have a build that allows them to, or something. Yeah, they don't bar them. They don't bar them. So yeah, I guess, you know what, if you're going to have, I guess sumo could go in. I, I don't know how much interest there would be. be better. Let's go back to breakdancing. Hello? Really? Breakdancing? Well, we're working our way through some of these things. Um, bass fishing. Bass fi- or fishing in general. See, I was going to say, that's not fair to perch. Could be any kind of fishing, I suppose, because if you're in somewhere far away, they would either have to import bass or make it. I mean, see, bass fishing... At, right now, have you ever watched on TV? Have you ever seen the yep. Bass Fishing Championships? Yep. The one thing they have done is they have, at least with editing and everything else, they've turned it into a show because you're doing something. Imagine if it was carp fishing where you sit and let your line just sit on the bottom of the water and, and have, we'll turn this into an Olympic sport. And have a beer. See, I think, the, and, and maybe, I, well, clearly I'm wrong. Um, but my thought process would be that if you're going to win a medal at an Olympic Games, you should be able to perform something far more physically superior than your competition. So that gets rid of some of these things that allegedly want, like... Now, Gino has just written in or called in, according to Lisa, and Gino is fully in favor of billiards, by the way. Caller calling in. here. I've, we're going to keep going with these because there's a bunch more. I've argued this for a long, long time, Don. I'm going to argue it again. People are going to get tired of me saying this if they haven't already. The thing that Olympics, the Olympics are missing right now is context. And what they should have is on every race, in every event, they should have a yep. Joe Schmo who runs that race or swims that race, whatever. So when Michael Phelps and those guys dive into the pool and they are blasting back and forth, you have no concept when you're watching of how fast they are because everybody is that fast. Yep. Yeah, now, the difference The difference is... Minuscule. Now right. take a guy who just swims laps at the Y. Or, you know what, even, even to put it in a little bit of perspective, and that's not a bad one, across the road, Westdale High School, take their swimming champ and throw him into the Olympics. Okay, so He's take, the absolute best in high school at Westdale across the road here, and throw him in and see how he does. 
And it would be fascinating. I think people, I actually do think that people would appreciate that. If you had, or, you know, they even, they have that, um, the technology now, you know, sometimes when they'll show the runners and they'll have the, it's like a ghost image of the person who went in the previous heat and they'll show where the person was. So have this average person go ahead of time so they're not in the way and show that ghost image compared to Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt or whatever else. I think that would be fascinating. I think people would love that. to see. Here's an average, not, we're not talking about someone who is the 400 pound guy, someone who's an actual okay athlete and here's what they can do compared to, and he was 15 yards behind in the 100 meter, Bolt was already finished or whatever else. All right, uh, we keep going. Uh, Bass fishing, bowling. Bowling is pushing to get into the Olympics. They really want to be an Olympic sport. How about bowling? That one's hard for me um, because you don't exactly have to be a physical specimen to do it. So that gets rid of my. Uh, no, you have to own a nice silk shirt with your name on embroidered on the back and an arm brace, yeah. and you have to live in Buffalo. <laughs> um, I I there, I think I have too many clients that are bowlers to comment. <laughs> Chess. Yeah, right up there with bridge. You know I mean, what? Have your own. Have your own world chess championship. Oh, they do. Like I'm sure they do. And Phil, um, um, Cops Coliseum, first Ontario place. And let them do that. But again, I think it starts to diminish the accomplishments of so many other athletes. You can have world championships that aren't included in the Olympics with these. You imagine the the drug testing for chess athletes or checkers athletes? My my son, when when he went to elementary school, they had a and the teacher was fantastic. The teacher who they created this big checkers tournament and checkers team, but they always called them checkers athletes, and I always thought that was very funny. And they were trying to make the kids who aren't on a sports team feel like they are part of it. And they would actually, when they would win, they would hang the banners in the gym next to like the basketball championship. It was checkers, and they called them checkers athletes. And I thought, okay, all right. I mean, it sounds funny to me. It's not really athletic. Well, they used to have typing championships when I was in high school. Yeah, but they didn't call them typing athletes. You didn't go and do like finger workouts to strengthen your fingers, to hit the keys harder. That's the one one thing in high school I really kicked my butt for not taking, but it was just the geeky guys that took typing. Now I type with two fingers. It's really a pain. Now you could have, here's one you could have. When I said chess, you could have chess boxing. You ever seen chess boxing? I'm not making this up. It is... Uh, one of the, the Klitschko brothers have done this before. It is, you play chess and then you get up and box in the ring. And I'm not sure what the point structure is for if you win the match in chess, if you get to like take a free shot at the guy's head or whatever. I don't know how it all works, but uh, chess boxing, that might be okay. Cricket. Cricket is one that is trying to get in. Uh, I, I I get cricket. I mean, that's a, that's a team sport. It's, it's, uh, it's not... Popular, perhaps, um, with my friends, but I know it's a, a very popular sport. It's the the challenge there might be is the games that take a day and a half to play. Well, you could now, you, you know, they made a, an adjustment. They went to rugby sevens to change the game of rugby a bit. They went to a smaller thing. You could do something with cricket to streamline it. To streamline it, and for people who say, "Well, it's cricket," there's only five or six countries that like cricket. Well, first of all, no, and the second thing is. How many countries are 
legitimate medal contenders in hockey in the Winter Olympics. We'll talk about women's hockey more specifically. In, or women's hockey. But even if you're going with men's hockey, because we know there's two teams yeah. that are going to win in women. But in men, Canada, the United States, Russia, Finland, Sweden. Switzerland's getting better. Maybe. Czech Republic, maybe. But you're talking seven teams. Yeah. Maybe. There are certainly seven countries. See, we think that's okay because we're the, one of the contenders. That's right. But there are certainly seven countries that can play cricket at an elite level that would be all in on the Olympics. All in. India, Pakistan, England, Australia, Scotland, New Zealand. I mean, all these places, they're all, and, and there's a bunch of others that I'm not even mentioning. I mean, for years, fastball wasn't in. Well, it came and went. It came and went. It's it out was now. in, it was in, it was out, and it's coming back in. Uh, they used to have live pigeon shooting. They would release pigeons and you had to blow them out of the air. That, that, that was an old one. They had tug of war. They had underwater swimming. They had sp- uh, motorboat racing, a bunch of other ones. All right. Uh, one more on here. MMA. Yep. Mixed martial arts, like UFC stuff. Yeah, the only problem with that is I don't know that a two or three day recovery is going to yeah. be enough. Sometimes you can need three months. Yeah. In the, you know, the, in the old days, the very beginning of UFC used to be a tournament and you would have three fights in a night and they had to have two or three substitutes ready to go because oftentimes somebody would break his hand or do something else and couldn't go back into the cage for the next fight. So the new guy would come in, the fresh meat would show up. So I don't know how you do that one. Well, I, they do it. They do it in wrestling. I met, remember going to the Brantford Civic Center in the eighties and yeah, Hulk Hogan though. was there one night and he was in three matches. <laughs> so if they're going to, yeah, if they're going to. exactly the same. If they're, if they're going to break. And, and he won every one of them and he yeah. was. Why hardly, not WWE? Yeah, we'll make that an Olympic sport. WWE wrestling. That might be as good as um, chess, bridge. How about darts? Darts has not been mentioned, but how about darts? I'd put darts ahead of breakdancing. I'm not big on breakdancing, clearly. The only time I've ever broke dance is when I was perhaps fully refreshed and slipped on the floor and tried to make it look cool. Wobbled to get back up. Well, there you go. Breakdancing, rock climbing, skateboarding, and surfing all going into the 2024 Olympics and all those other ones trying to get in. Uh, feel free to let me know what you think should be there. If any of those other ones, I'd love to hear from you if you are in support of any of those other ones. Radley at 900CHML.com. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.